explain a little bit more in a moment. We have a new series. One of the things I've been, actually even just this week, speaking with other church leaders from across the country, we Skype in together every now and again, do some stuff together and pray for each other and we talk about different things. And just recently, David and John and myself have even discussed it before as well, but even as leaders, just this week, we've been talking about it, that how do you measure the success of a church? And there can be some very dangerous answers to that. We don't measure the success of a church according to how many rock up on a Sunday morning. We don't measure the success of a church by how much social work, social justice, charity work we're doing in town. We don't measure the success of a church by how friendly or welcoming we are. All those can be good things, but they're not the mark of a healthy church necessarily. How we measure the success of a church is are we making disciples? That's what we're here for. We're here to make disciples. Jesus didn't say, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth, therefore go and do church. He said, go and make disciples, teaching them to be obedient, to guard the truth, and to baptize them. And so we need to constantly keep asking ourselves, how are we doing? Not just us as elders, which we do, in terms of are we making disciples? That's not as people getting saved, but that's also how we bring people to maturity, how we work alongside each other, how we encourage one another, spur one another along, along meet up together, not just for socialising, but to encourage one another spiritually as well, and to teach one another. How do we make disciples? And are we doing it? But also yourselves, to ask yourselves, am I involved in that? Am I making disciples? It's not just for the experts or the ones with the wage to do it, it's for all of us. We're all disciples, therefore we all should be disciple makers. So, we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians over about seven Sundays. And this is a letter to a very, very, very young church. And uh, just to set the scene, this is probably one of the earliest books of the New Testament, if not the earliest. It's a toss-up between this one, James, and Galatians as to which one got written first. It's pro- quite probably this one, probably around 51 AD. And the story is, Thessalonica, as it was called then, today we know it as Thessalonicae. It's the second largest city in Greece now. It's got about 800,000 people now. Huge, great city in the north of Greece. And back then, it was very influential, very, very large. Even 2,000 years ago, it had 100,000 people in it. It's massive for back then. It was a very highly influential city. It was a Roman uh, provincial capital. It was, even when it was birthed, it was named after Alexander the Great's half-sister. It's got a real prestige to it. And it got a little bit prideful in it. But uh, it was very influential, mainly because of its geography. It was on the trade route from North Greece, linked Greece to the Balkans in the north. Big trade route and it became a centre for education and for commerce. Quite a renowned place. And these two guys, Paul and Silas, you can read the story in Acts 17 when you get home. It's a great little story. In Acts 17, Paul and Silas, on their travels, and possibly Timothy with them as well, they rock up in this city. What do they do? They go to the synagogue for three Sabbaths running, three Saturdays running. Paul reasons with the Jews in the synagogue to show them from their own scripture that the Messiah, the king they're waiting for, has come. Jesus of Nazareth, that they've no doubt probably heard about from across the ways on the grapevine, He's the Messiah they're looking for. And many of them actually get saved. Within just two or three weeks, a number of them get saved. And also some devout Greeks and some of the leading women at the time as well. A church is getting birthed just within a fortnight. What's interesting is it stirs up a lot of animosity very, very quickly. A lot of the devout Jews who who are still unbelieving got very, very angry, violently so. They form mobs. 
They hunted down Paul and Silas. They dragged out some of these new believers from their own homes. You read about Jason in Acts 17. They get dragged out from their houses and brought before the authorities. It causes a lot of trouble very, very quickly because the church is being birthed. It does something in the spiritual realm, doesn't it? So unfortunately, to avoid there being more trouble and more danger for these new disciples, this new church, Paul and Silas have to run away at night in secret. They have to go. So of course, inevitably, imagine how Paul feels. He's rocked up. He's preached the gospel. Within a fortnight, people are getting saved. It causes a lot of problems and he has to leave. The church has been born. Hallelujah. But imagine how he feels for that church, this fledgling baby church. He must be so angry. He is. He's very, very anxious for them. But within a couple of years, he gets reports from Timothy, who is possibly there with him at the time, but has certainly been since. He sends him a report. Of, or he actually meets up with him and gives him a report to say, they're doing all right. The church is growing. There's some really good stuff going on there. So as much as Paul is now anxious for this fledgling church, he wants them to come to maturity, he's actually encouraged that God's doing something quite magnificent there. And so he writes this letter, kind of this bittersweet mixture of, I'm worried about you, but I'm hearing good stuff. And he just brings some correction, but mostly praise to this church. And that's what we're going to spend the next seven or eight Sundays going through, looking at this and what Paul says to this young church. So today we're just going to read the first chapter. It's ten verses. I'm just going to read this first chapter. From verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, this is Silas. Silas is just a shortening for Silvanus. It's like calling Timothy Tim. So this is the same guy. Paul, Silas, and Timothy is now with them. He's brought this report. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Now remember this story you just heard. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labour of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction, remember all that violence that was going on, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, all North Greece, huge region. For not only is the word of the Lord sandeth forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let me just pray. Lord, even now as we just come before your word, we were saying how much we stand firmly on the fact that we hear from you when we spend time in your word. And to not read your word is a missed opportunity to hear from you. May you speak to us even just in this next half hour or so, may you speak to us clearly. Something for us as individuals and also something for us as a church for us to get our teeth into, to grab hold of, to step into, whatever it might be. Come and speak to us, we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. So he's writing to this church. He's encouraging them. He's actually quite delighted to hear what's going on. But he writes in this first introduction, he reminds them quite of what's happened. How do you measure the success of the Thessalonian church? Is it because of how many meetings they had? No. Is it because of how many were coming to the meetings? No. 
Is he talking about how much charity work they've done? No. He's simply talking about the gospel effect to them and beyond them. That's how he measures the success and that's why he's encouraged. Greece is famous for the birth of the Olympics, isn't it? Have we got them coming up soon? We've got Olympics this year. Yeah, we have. Yeah. Brazil. Of course it is. Ivan's been reminding me. Of course it is. Relay races. I've got a relay baton here. When you actually dig deeper into this passage, we actually discover there's a relay going on in here. There's a relay race happening. And that's what I want us to look at. Because he's talking about a particular kind of baton. He's talking about when they came, they passed on the gospel. And when they left, what was left behind? The gospel. And what has had effect? The gospel. And what are the people doing? The gospel. And how is he measuring the success of the church? According to what's happening with the good news of Jesus Christ. So I want to talk about the baton of the gospel. The gospel simply is just a, a word that means good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus Christ is that God came down to us when we were lost in our sin and rescued us. He saved us that we could not do. That's the good news of Jesus Christ who died for you and for me. That's the baton. That's what I want to talk about this morning. If we are called to make disciples, we are called to receive a baton but not just hold on to it but to pass it on. Let's just look at what Paul says about this baton here. Verse, start with verse 4. He explains what this baton is. He explains the mark of what he knows is the success and the, and the reason they are healthy. How he knows this. For we know, brothers, verse 4, are loved by God that he has chosen you. We know you are saved. We know God has chosen you. How? Because our gospel came to you not only in word. Anyone can do that. But it came with proof. But also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Three marks to know that the gospel has had effect and that these people are clearly saved rather than just saying they are. They came in power. They saw transformation. They saw change from the inside out. They saw its effect quite tangibly in these people and how they were willing to stand up despite violent mobs and say, no, we belong to Christ now. We've seen the light. We recognise him for who he is. There is a power and there is a change in these people and it's quite open. But also, the Holy Spirit... It came in the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit had an effect. Another, another means of knowing... Sometimes people ask me, how do I know I'm saved? Look for the fruit of the Holy Spirit. If there is new, birth, new growth in you, if there is growth, if there is new life, if there is something growing in you, you will see the fruit of it, like a tree. Holy Spirit has a fruit. What is the fruit? It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Are you growing in any or all of those? If not, it's a good review to ask God about how to, <laughs> where you need help. But do you see yourself growing in that? Do you see yourself growing in love for others that you wouldn't normally have love for? In joy, in circumstances you wouldn't normally experience. I'll talk about that in a minute. In a peace when you're in the middle of the storm that can only be from God. Do you see that? Do you see Holy Spirit at work in you? That's, there's helpful proof. There's fruit of your salvation. But also he says full conviction. As much as people should be able to see a change in you, if people can't see a change in you, then you need to ask questions. But as well as people seeing a change in you, inside, Holy Spirit confirms in us, doesn't he? He gives us the inner conviction. He's got, I can't even explain it. I can't even put it into words. You know when you're trying to explain it to non-Christians, how do you know you're saved? Well, I know. Because I know. I know because I know. 
There's this inner conviction that tallies up with the outer change that is evident to everybody else that goes, I'm a child of God. I make mistakes. I give in to temptation. I'm still giving in to bad old habits. But I know I'm different. I know there's something at work in me. Paul knew these people were saved because he saw it came in power. It had an effect. He saw the Holy Spirit at work in them and he saw their own internal conviction. But it's interesting, the word he, there, he uses there in verse 5, because our gospel came to you. Anybody can rock up with the gospel. Anyone can rock up and say, the good news is that the answer was inside you all along. You just need to try harder. There's a lot of self-help books in our bookshops. Anyone can rock up and say, good news for you, Allah's the one. That's a gospel. That's not the gospel with a capital G. The gospel is Jesus Christ. The gospel, when Paul says our gospel, he's talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ because he reiterates that and you became imitators, verse 6, of us and of the Lord. Verse 6. It starts with Jesus Christ, doesn't it? How do we know someone is preaching the gospel is when it keeps coming back to Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus anything or not Jesus is not the gospel. Jesus plus nothing as the answer to all our situations, our problems, the answer to our sin, our brokenness is Jesus. It starts with him. He initiated it. The only reason we get to love other people or to love each other is because he loved us first. The only reason you get to be family together, would any of us know each other if we weren't Christians? Quite possibly not, actually. The reason we're together is because Jesus did something. Because Jesus made it possible for us to be children of the Father. It started with him. The only reason we get to sacrifice, we get to give, why would you do that? Why would you give of yourself for someone else? Why would you do that? The only reason we get to do that is because he sacrificed for us. And in light of that, we want to, we want to pass that on, don't we? It's because he started it. The only reason we get to roll our sleeves up and bless others and serve them and preach the gospel is because he rolled his sleeves up first and got his own hands dirty. He came here. The only reason we are ever possible to actually die to ourselves is because he died for us. The only reason we can step into a new life, an abundant life that doesn't always look like it, but truly is. The only reason we get to live a new life is because he was raised to life once and for all, never to die again, that we might live with him forever. It started with him. You see, because all those reasons and many, many more, the list goes on, it means he's in the journey with us every step of the way because he started it. The good news of Jesus Christ is it's all about Jesus and nothing else. And that is the gospel that had an effect in Thessalonica. That is the gospel that's having an effect here. It is. And that's the gospel I trust will have even greater effect in Home Bay and beyond for him and for his glory. And so, there's the baton of the gospel. See, as Tom reminded us, he used the word I've been using over recent weeks, saying we're not a club, didn't he? We're not a club. We could just meet together and have good fun. If, ne if next Sunday was what we did every Sunday, we're just a club. We're doing it for good reason, for community purposes, that's fine. But if we're just a club, if we're just... If church isn't just about meetings, church isn't just about socialising, church isn't just about charity, anyone can enjoy all of those things and not know Christ. The core baton of the church that makes us church is the gospel. It has to be. 
which is why we can't stop preaching it, which is why we can't stop singing it, which is why, as much as we can, we must not stop forgetting who we are in Christ and what we're here for. When you're in the shops, when you're in the home, when you're talking to your neighbours. doesn't mean you have to crowbar Jesus into every conversation. Just bear in mind, consciously, I'm a child of God and he's got a job for me to do. What do you want me to do? Is it just to listen? Is it to shut up? Or is it to offer to pray for him? Just remembering that. It's keeping that core baton at hand. That's what makes us church. So that's the baton, the good news of Jesus Christ. How did these people receive it? We've already talked about a little bit the marks of how they received this baton. They received it in power and Holy Spirit and full conviction. He gives us a couple more clues just to see what it means to receive the baton. Verse 6. You became imitators, and this word imitators here means followers. It's not just copying, it's actually following. You became followers of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction, violent riots were going on, weren't they? With the joy of the Holy Spirit. Here's another mark of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Here comes the rain we were praying for earlier, look. It's prophetic, believe it. These people were facing much affliction. They were being dragged from their homes. In that, how do they express it? In fear? No, in joy. There's another mark of the Holy Spirit at work in them, this utter joy in them that they couldn't shake and was deep-seated despite what they were facing, being dragged from their homes, facing mobs. The joy of the Holy Spirit was at work in them. Now, I don't know about you, but I love comfort. Who prefers comfort zones? Who likes to be comfortable? Who would rather not be comfortable? Just check in, well done. Or not well done, perhaps. Because the trouble is, God uses affliction for his good, doesn't he? We hate it. I've got two things to say to you. If you're in comfort right now, if you're in a comfortable place, generally speaking, life-wise, first of all, consciously, please thank him and be grateful for it. Don't take it for granted. We moan about first world problems. My, I've had an awful week because my Wi-Fi has been down. Well, watch the news and see what's going on around the world. Do you know what I mean? First world problems. We worry about stuff, don't we? But ultimately, be thankful for what we have got in our comfort zones. But actually in that is a big dangerous, there's a big danger of blind spots. When you're in a comfortable place, you can miss on what God wants to do in you, what he wants to challenge you, what's to provoke you on. Sin you need to deal with that you're not even, you're complacent about. If you're in a comfortable place, be a little bit frightened, but thank him for it. Does that make sense? But if you're in a place of affliction right now, that might be health, it might be finances, it might be family relationships, it might be actual animosity in the workplace, it could be any number of things. If you're facing that right now, can I just say to you, first of all, he loves you, he loves you, he loves you very, very much. You're his kid. If you're in Christ, you're, the, you're a child of the Father and he loves you so much. And he's not leaving the, you there because you're still naughty. He's not leaving you in that place because he's angry with you. If you're his, he loves you. If it doesn't look like he's acted, it's because he wants to do a work in you. Affliction unearths our true values and our priorities. And we can be blind to that or we can be open to seeing what they are and asking him what he wants us to do about it. But also know that in that place, you can know the joy of the Holy Spirit. If God has left you in a place of affliction, it's for a good reason, because he's a good father, not the opposite, and he wants to do a work in you. But even while you're there, you can know the comfort and the joy of the Holy Spirit while he does a work in you for his glory and for your better good. That's not to be derisory about where you're at. I'm not dismissing where you're at. 
It can be big sometimes and really, really painful. But just know his love and his available joy within that. Is that okay? Also, and I'll spend some more time on this in a couple of weeks' time when we hit chapter 2, but in verse 9, there's another mark of how they, uh, proof that they were definitely saved, that the gospel had had effect. Verse 9, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. We can read that word idols and think that was for back then. It's an olden day thing. They had little statues. Or if you live in Asia, you've got a little mental piece and you're praying to your ancestors through these little... Idols are still just as relevant for you and me in Herne Bay right now. They just go by different names and they look different. Money, sex, power, comfort can be an idol. An idol is anything that sits on the throne of your heart and challenges your choices before God. If I asked you what sits on the throne of your heart, when you have to make a choice before God, do I follow him or not, what's asking you not to? There's an indicator of what might be an idol in your life. Maybe it's something you've dealt with, but maybe it still gives a tug. That can be an indicator. Or, here's a good question, what do you fear? Because if you can recognise what it is you fear, if you flip it, there's an idol. Do you fear not having any money? Because in which case, money could be an idol. Because money is the answer to all your problems. If you had money, you wouldn't fear. Do you fear not... Being, do you fear being alone for the rest, rest of your life? There could be an idol that God isn't enough. I'm not being dismissive of, how you, of emotions, I don't mean like that, but if you, fear, well, can you, if you fear people not liking you, flip it, you cherish man's approval more than what God thinks of you. There's an idol. It's quite sobering, isn't it? I have to deal with many of those things. What do you fear most? What, what is it you worry about? When you're left to your own devices, where do your thoughts wander? What do you worry about? What do you wish you had more of? There's an idol. We'll spend more time on that in a couple of weeks' time, but in the, in the meantime, have a little think about it. Maybe God wants to speak to you about something. And we'd love to pray with you if necessary. If not, do, do it on your own. That's fine. There was an indicator that these people had clearly turned from idols to the living God, to Christ. There was a proof in the pudding, if you like, that they were saved. So there's the baton, is the good news of Jesus Christ that Paul doesn't want them to let go of. They're not letting go of it. They've received it. They've clearly received it. Who here has received the baton of the good news of Jesus Christ? Yes. Are you meant to just hold on to it? You're meant to pass it on. And here's the last bit I want to talk about, about passing it on. Verse 8. I love this. Did they just keep it to themselves? No. Verse 8. Oh, so for verse 7, let's go for verse 7. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia, in Achaia. This example, this word example, it's, uh, it means a mould. It means replication. It's not just, here's something you can try that works. It's an actual mould that is meant to create more of the same, which will create more of the same. It's a very firm and indicative pattern. But what I love is, this moulding, this shaping, as you are shaped into a place where you're then able to shape others the same way, keeping the core baton of the gospel. I love that it does not say, and you became examples to all the believers in northern Greece. It doesn't say that. You became an example. Don't miss that word. You became an example. Because what they did together made a difference and rang out. 
See now, if I'm in a relay race, I'll get this ring off because it might keep making that annoying noise. If I've got a baton in a relay race, I could just hold on to it, couldn't I? I could keep running. That's not the point of the relay race. It's about others getting involved, isn't it? So, Adrian, do you want to come here? See, now, I'm running on a relay race. You want to wait there for me, mate? Well done. I'm on a relay race, and I'm running. I haven't run this far in weeks. Oh. Now, I've got the gospel, and I could keep it onto myself, and I'm just going to keep quiet about it. It's a private faith, and uh, I've, got, I've, got, I've got the gospel. I've got the baton. Hooray, I'm saved. I'm all right. I've got my ticket to heaven. I'm all right, Jack. I'm a bit frightened of talking to other people, and I don't really want to work alongside. I don't really, I don't really like his church, so I'm not going to go to church because it's, it's full of people who are probably, well, a bit like me, really. So I'd rather not be there. So I'm just going to run this race. I don't know what I can do this for. I'm going to run this race, and I've got the good news of Jesus Christ, and I'm saved. Hallelujah. Is that the answer? No. What you're supposed to do, go into all the world and make disciples. Here. Now... Is that actually how you hand over a baton in a relay race? No. Come back. Where's my asthma pump? Right. Wait there. Hang on. I'll go around. I'm running on a relay race, and I know I've got to pass the baton on. Now, what do they do in a relay race? He starts running. Not too fast. I've got to catch up with you. You start running at a similar speed, Adrian, but we come up to the similar speed... And you take hold of the baton. And there's a moment when we're both holding the baton together, running alongside at the same speed. And there comes a point where Adrian comes into maturity to go off and make his own disciples. Do you see the big difference? Give him a round of applause. Thank you. And I didn't drop the mic once. Whew. To make disciples is running alongside one another. It's not just about one-to-one -one meeting up for Bible study, which it is. It's not just growth group, which it is. It's not just Sunday mornings, which it is. It's running alongside each other in many different ways, in different places, different capacities. I need to get fit. But as we, as we do it, running alongside one another is better caught than taught. We need to teach, we need to speak out, we need to look into doctrine, we need to understand what verses say and how they are in context with other verses. We need to look up what great theologians and Bible teachers previously and around us speak into. We need to listen on Sundays and then not just go away thinking, that was a lovely word, that tickled me. You need to go away and think about it. Talk about it in growth group. If you're not in a growth group, get involved. It's where you grow. It's why we call them growth groups. But as we do that, together... Other people sit up and take notice. Because then in verse 8, for not only is the word of the Lord sounded forth from you across northern Greece, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. That sounded forth, that word there, in the original Greek, exocheo is called, it's the, it's the only time it happens in the New Testament. And it means a ringing out, it means a big shout, it means a big song, a heralding, a fanfare. It, the word has connotations with an ocean of sound or a great crowd or a blast of trumpets. These guys had only known Paul and Silas for about just over a fortnight. And yet God's gospel of Jesus Christ had such an effect in them, the whole region stood up and took notice. 
to see what's happened, to see what God has done. As we disciple one another, as we run alongside one another, as we spur one another along, as we share lives with each other, but not just for socialising purposes, because we want to see each other grow and we want to we want to learn doctrine together. Doctrine is a good thing. It's not just for the academics. I can point you to some good books. But don't just do the book on your own, which is good, but do it with someone else. Get together, meet up, growth group. Let growth group not just to be about an hour and a half with your friends and thinking you've done a bit of Bible study. Have you walked away challenged? Have you provoked each other? Have you asked difficult questions together? But has it all been with the one single purpose of making disciples? Are you involved in disciple-making or are you expecting the experts and the waged ones to do it for you? It's a good question, isn't it? I want to see Beacon Church flourishing long after I'm gone. I'm not planning on going anywhere, don't worry. Relax. I don't want to come a point where we're called to, I don't know, church plant in 10 years' time or some, something's happened illness-wise and we have to step down. Whatever it might be, I don't want to hand over Beacon to, a, to a, an on-running team and Beacon falls apart. It's not about me. It's got to be about Jesus. But I don't want to hand over and Beacon Church bumbles along at the same speed. I want to hand over to, and I know John and David's heart is the same, to hand over to a team that will go way beyond what we could have ever done at a greater speed and to a greater widespread acclamation of what God is doing in them. I, I want our, the disciples we're making to, to surpass us and them to be surpassed by the ones they raise up as well. I Increasingly, I just want Beacon just to be a big fanfare on how we disciple one another, how we live together, how we fellowship and how we grow together to have such an effect across Herne Bay that people sit up and take notice, that it brings glory to Christ. It may well stir up angry mobs. But what he does with that this brings a flourishing church. Actually, turn to Acts 17. There's a phrase I know you've heard me use before. This is where it comes from. This is what I want to see in Herne Bay. Because this is the people who are angry about it. This is what they say about this baby church that is only a fortnight old. A fortnight old. Look at this. Verse 5 in Acts 17. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, it's a city of 100,000, remember. This is huge. Set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. I would love if one day people are pointing to Beacon saying, These are the kind of people who are turning the world upside down. Yeah? Well, that starts here. That starts with us. And we don't have to do anything clever. We don't have to drag in famous, expensive, rich speakers. We don't have to read all the right books necessarily and find the right model and the right process and the right programs. It's simply declaring the good news of Jesus Christ and let it have an effect in us so that we have an effect on others, so they have an effect on others. It's making disciples. It's actually as profound and as simple as that. Do you want to see Herne Bay turned upside down for Jesus? Yeah, do you want to stand? Lord, we are your disciples.
Lord, but we want, want that to be true in every essence of the word, Lord. We want to run alongside each other, passing on the baton, pointing the way, speaking out where we need to speak out, out of love and out of relationship. Lord, I don't want to be the kind of person who's not able to be spoken to if I need to be spoken to. I want to be accountable. I want to be teachable. Lord, help us all to be like that. But bring us each to a place where we can be involved in discipling one another. In twos, threes, six, twelves, twenties, fifties and hundreds. Lord, in all the different means of community discipling, help us to be a part of that. Speak to us how we can be involved. Lord, but we declare that the baton we will not let go of is that we believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God who came to this earth to die on a cross for us and raised a new life that we might live with him forever. It's all about you, Jesus, and nothing else. That is the gospel we declare now. That's the gospel we would continue to declare while we roll up our sleeves and bless others. Lord, help us to know how to do that in thousands of different ways, in thousands of different moments. Lord, you were speaking to us earlier about reviving us by Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we need you. Holy Spirit, will you come and speak to us even now? Challenge us where we need to be challenged. Provoke us, stir us, excite us for what you can do through us. Lord, as, as, as our gospel that we declare about you sounds forth across Herne Bay and beyond, God willing, may it be like a mass choir. Not just the words we use, but how we disciple one another will be a mass choir singing a great fanfare, a great anthem across Herne Bay for you and for your glory, that others might know you. Lord, I pray for others out there that don't know you yet that will be greater disciple-makers than we are. Lord, send them our way. We'd love to meet them. We'd love them to become a part of the family here. But also, not just Beacon, but we're talking about Christ Church and the Baptist Church, Lord. We're talking about the other churches in town. Lord Jesus, that you might have your way amongst them all. It's not just about Beacon. We don't want to make a, a name for the B word. We want to make a name for Christ. So come and have your way, we pray. Speak to us even now and during the week, Lord. Help us, Lord, to be disciple makers because we want to do it for your glory and for more souls to be saved. Thank you, Lord. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen.